Welcome back to Talking PFAS Podcast. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. Before I tell you who today's guest is, just a little announcement. Today is the season finale of Talking PFAS and the last episode for 2021. I'll be taking a few months off to recharge my batteries and then begin work researching and producing the next season of Talking PFAS podcast. I already have some great guests lined up to interview with many more important aspects of PFAS to discuss. The podcast will return on Tuesday, the 25th of January, 2022. I know it's a long time to wait for a new episode episode but I hope you will go back and listen to your favorite episodes in the break. I will also be promoting some of my favorite episodes on Twitter each month until I return. I want to thank everyone who has continued to listen to my little pod through this year even despite the pandemic. Thank you. Thank you to all my special guests that have been part of this podcast and thank you also for the many people who have emailed me with compliments about the podcast and I appreciate all your feedback. Now, I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Alyssa Cordner, an environmental sociologist from America. Alyssa is an associate professor in the sociology department at Whitman College in eastern Washington state in the U.S., Alyssa was the lead author on a commentary paper published early in July this year. The Viewpoint paper was published in Environmental Science and Technology and is called The True Costs of PFAS and the Benefits of Acting Now. Alyssa and her colleagues write in the introduction of their paper that this review of the true costs of PFAS highlights the need to act now to ensure that exposures are capped at current levels by reducing the production and use of PFAS. It calls attention to systemic failures of US chemical regulation, including inadequate pre-market review of new compounds, data gaps that prevent and delay the regulation of existing chemicals, and the widespread externalisation of social costs of pollution onto the public. They later state in their paper that other significant health-related costs borne by government institutions and taxpayers include biomonitoring and health monitoring of exposed populations and government research expenditures aimed at identifying PFAS toxicity and extent of exposures. They state, in a more equitable world, this research would be carried out by the producer before the chemical came onto the market. Now to today's discussion. Alyssa, welcome to Talking PFAS podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Can you please give the listeners a little bit of your bio as it relates to PFAS? Sure. Uh, I am an associate professor in the sociology department at Whitman College, which is in eastern Washington state in the U.S., and I've been working on PFAS since about 2014. I'm an environmental sociologist, and my previous research had looked at risk and uh, regulation and activism and industry decision-making around flame retardant chemicals. Around 2014, we started working on PFAS, and since then I've been the co-director of the PFAS Project Lab, which is based at Northeastern University, with Phil Brown, who is the other co-director. So over the last, I guess now, six, seven years, we've been working on PFAS from a, a variety of social science perspectives, starting by trying to understand the social and scientific discovery of this class of chemicals and understand how they, essentially why they remain in such wide use production, why they are 
such a ubiquitous contaminant, given that at least some actors have known for 50 years about their toxicity and exposure concerns. So what is it that has gotten us into this situation? So that was our first major project. And then since then, we've worked on PFAS activism, uh, trying to understand the rise of social movement activity related to PFAS. And currently, we're working on a number of projects. And one of them is trying to understand the full and multifaceted costs of PFAS contamination. Wonderful. And that's the reason that I got you on to the asked you to come onto the podcast because I'd actually just done a tweet uh, just before I saw your article about the wondering how much money has been spent on um, PFAS and and I know that your article that we're going to discuss today is not just talking about the financial costs so we'll get into that in a little while but you know I was questioning I wonder if anyone is out there mapping or recording how much money is being spent on PFAS because, as we all know, society has so many needs and there's never enough money and we're in a pandemic. So to me, the money that's being spent on PFAS cleanup would be better served, um, you know, in other areas, but it also has to be cleaned up. It's a dilemma. Absolutely. And that's one of the parts of our larger research project is documenting the very direct and concrete costs of PFAS contamination. We're starting our larger research group, uh, which includes experts from disciplines ranging from epidemiology and toxicology to uh, economics and law. Our larger research group is tracking these costs, focusing on a couple of case studies of different states in the U.S., but also scaling up to look at costs more broadly. So that certainly is part of our future research agenda is trying to document these very concrete and direct costs, things that are often tied to cleanup, remediation, drinking water treatment, things like that. Fantastic. I can certainly help you from an Australian perspective. I've been, I'm an Australian journalist, freelance, and I've been studying PFAS and reporting on PFAS since I discovered them in 2018. I didn't break the news on PFAS. Other journalists did that. But I have followed PFAS in Australia and more broadly since 2018. And I could certainly help you with what's been spent in Australia because actually in comparison to the U.S., the Australian spend is much, much less, much less than um, the US. Um, We'll come back to that. Uh, You're absolutely right that many of the costs or impacts of PFAS exposure are harder to quantify. And so we're also working on trying to develop measures and quantitative and qualitative calculations of some of those costs that are harder to quantify, including the short and long-term health impacts of PFAS exposure to the whole population, because we know that, you know, at least in the U.S., upwards of 98-99% of residents have detectable levels of PFAS in their blood. Uh, And also thinking about some of the other impacts and costs of PFAS exposure, ranging from impacts on homeowners in terms of declines in real estate value uh, to impacts on farmers and agricultural operations when they find that their soil and crops are contaminated with PFAS. So it really is a a multifaceted problem. Yes, and we're going to discuss your paper today, which is called The True Cost of PFAS and the Benefits of Acting Now. So we will unpack some of those costs and benefits in just a moment. Um, Could you please, for our listeners, Alyssa, just explain, you teach across four areas, environmental sociology, environmental health, social research methods, and 
um, actually five areas, sociology of health and illness and environmental justice. I wonder if you could just for the listeners give a very brief you know, sentence on each of those areas that you teach so people understand uh, where you're coming from in your paper. Sure. My background is as an environmental sociologist. And what that means is looking broadly at the interrelationships between human societies and natural ecosystems. Uh, so trying to understand not just the impacts that human society has on the natural world, but also how the natural world has really direct and consequential impacts for human society as well. Um, looking at the areas of environmental health, uh, I focused on the sociological aspects of environmental health policy, regulation, industry, and decision-making. And uh, environmental justice focuses on the ways that environmental harms, as well as environmental privileges or benefits, are very unevenly distributed across the population, with low-income populations and people of color bearing a much higher burden of exposure to environmental harms. Uh, Sociology of health and illness focuses on the ways that social institutions, social groups, uh, norms, values, uh, how all of these social factors impact both the experience of uh, having certain illnesses or diseases um, and also the ways that those experiences are socially structured through things like healthcare professions and the insurance industry, just to, to name a couple of examples. And then finally, looking at social research methods, my goal here as a professor is to train students in ethical, rigorous, social scientific research methods that include both qualitative and quantitative approaches to understanding social problems. Fantastic. Okay. So you've got your hands full with all of that. Thank you for explaining that because sometimes people don't understand uh, necessarily what each of those disciplines do. Alyssa, why did you decide to write this paper, The True Cost of PFAS? and the benefits of acting now? This paper comes out of a collaboration. So I'm the first author, but it's very much a collaboration across this research group that has been working together for about a year now on this exact question, trying to understand the true costs of PFAS, these broad, multifaceted impacts of PFAS contamination. And it's been spearheaded by Greta Goldenman, who was the lead consultant on an analysis of this type that was done in the European Union, who gathered this group of folks together because she wanted to do a similar analysis focusing on the U.S. The EU analysis was very influential, and there certainly is a need to replicate this for the U.S. and also to make some larger arguments about the benefits of precautionary regulation and looking at PFAS a little bit differently to make those broader arguments and also to develop some broader and generalizable methodologies that folks at different scales, whether it's different states in the U.S or whether it's other countries like Australia, to develop some of these methodologies that could be used by others to look at costs where they are. Okay, wonderful. Now, this paper was published in the Environmental Science and Technology Journal. When was your article published, Alyssa? It was published on July 7th, 2021. Now, um, I note that it's not uh, peer-reviewed. Is that because it's a commentary? Exactly. Yeah. The Environmental Science Technology publishes viewpoints, and that's what this article is. And viewpoints are reviewed by multiple members of the editorial staff, but are not sent out for peer review. But but it's normal for a viewpoint not to be peer reviewed. That's all I, I wanted to clarify. That's correct. Viewpoints in this in this journal, the viewpoints are not peer reviewed. Okay. Because often, the reason I'm saying that is often, especially 
in Australia or in contexts where government um, representatives are there, they will often discount anything that is not peer-reviewed right off the bat. So um, I guess what I'm trying to clarify there is um, how do you – how do you stop articles like this just being discounted because they're not peer-reviewed? How, how are they received generally? It's a really important question. I think that it's clear in the presentation of the article that this is a commentary piece, not a research article that is intended to provoke discussion, to make arguments about what this group of scientists thinks is necessary in terms of PFAS, and that also provides some steps forward in terms of a research agenda. Certainly in our research group, the intention is not to stop with this commentary, but to continue with our project and to develop analyses that we will be submitting for peer-reviewed publication later on. Okay, that's wonderful. Thanks for explaining that. So what do you hope that this paper will achieve, you and your colleagues? What do you hope the paper achieves? We hope that it uh, inspires discussion and reflection among the broad range of stakeholders who are impacted by the costs of PFAS. So folks ranging from impacted residents, to municipalities and drinking water systems trying to understand why they are currently bearing the burden of PFAS cleanup contamination costs. Um, and also we hope that it is impactful for regulators thinking about how to address PFAS as a class of chemicals more generally. There's a lot of attention in the U.S. and in many other places around the world, a lot of attention to how we should be dealing with the PFAS contamination crisis. And our goal here is to contribute to the argument of needing to treat PFAS as a class of chemicals, needing to think more upstream and in a more precautionary way about PFAS contamination, wanting to shift that burden from the public and local and state and federal governments bearing all of the costs and challenges associated with PFAS contamination, wanting to shift that burden back onto the producers of these chemicals. Excellent. Um, now, I know the paper's only been up for about 10 days, published for about 10 days, but what has the feedback been like so far? You know, I, I think that uh, well, you can ask me that in six months and I'll have a much better answer. But so far, it's been very positive. We've heard from a range of folks, other journalists. We've heard from activists who have been excited to share this with their local officials. We've heard from other researchers who think that this resonates with them. And so we're certainly hopeful that this resonates with a lot of different stakeholders in the PFAS world. Excellent. Have you heard from the fluorochemical industry at all? We have not. Not about this paper. Okay, interesting. I wouldn't expect them to necessarily agree with the argument that we're making here. Uh, I do note in your paper that your very first sentence does talk about the fact that there are now listed 9,000 of these PFAS chemicals, which, uh, as I discussed in the last episode of Talking PFAS with my guest, that's quite a new number, isn't it? It never used to be 9,000. It used to be about 4,500. That number comes from an EPA database, we've, and we've been tracking this number when we first started working on PFAS, you know, in, in 2014, 2015, we were aware of a few dozen individual chemical compounds. And lately, it seems like every time we look at that EPA database, the number has increased. And there are questions about whether this 9,000 represents active use compounds versus just distinct chemical structures, but 
the at least the EPA identifies over 9,000 distinct PFAS in the class. Yes, and you mentioned in your article there in the introduction about that uh, the PFAS that replacement PFAS chemicals, including new chemicals by industry, are widely used in more than 200 use categories. And I know that's from Julianne Gluger's paper because we discussed that in episode 22. That's where you got that from, isn't it? That's correct. That's the exact same paper. Were you surprised by some of those uses? I mean, I certainly was when I looked at um, her paper. Absolutely. I think the range of different use categories and the additional areas of industrial and consumer applications that we keep learning about with PFAS really highlight the need to be thinking about PFAS very carefully as a chemical class. There just in the last week was a major study release that looked at the presence of PFAS in fracking fluid, in the use of PFAS in the fluids that are used to do hydraulic fracturing here in the U.S. And that is a use that hasn't received much attention up to this point. And so whether we're talking about a major industrial use like fracking fluid or a consumer application like ski wax or astroturf, all all these different uses that we come into contact with every day, it just speaks to the range of products and applications that are using these compounds and then therefore the huge range of impacts that they potentially can be having on people's health and the environment. Even though some countries like Australia, we don't I don't think we produce PFAS, but because PFAS is used in so many wide applications, like over 200 use categories, including cosmetics, we certainly would be using them in the manufacturing process. Absolutely. And that doesn't get enough attention in countries like ours that don't actually produce the PFAS. Absolutely. So Alyssa, looking at your paper, you talk about this under the heading, the snapshot of the problem, uh, shifting the burden to public utilities. Would you like to talk about that for a moment? What do you mean? Yes, absolutely. So current estimates are that over 200 million U.S. residents are receiving drinking water through their public drinking water supply that is contaminated with PFAS. But at this point, in almost all cases, the burden for cleaning up that contaminated drinking water is falling on the public utilities and therefore the ratepayers. There are relatively few cases in the U.S. where that remediation expense has been borne by the PFAS manufacturers themselves. And so these are huge costs that are being shifted onto public utilities rather than being borne by the companies that are producing these chemicals. What's the reference for the 200 million US people drinking PFAS water? Because I've heard people say it's 19 million. So what's your reference there? It's a paper by two folks with the Environmental Working Group, Andrews and Nidenko, and it used estimations based on locations where drinking water has been tested systematically. So it drew on basically all the high quality drinking water testing data that was available at the time of their analysis and then extrapolated to the broader U.S. population. One of the things with PFAS is, you know, in the U.S. we don't have a federal standard for any PFAS. We have a health advisory level for two compounds, but it's not enforceable. And so there's no universal testing requirement for PFAS in drinking water. That means that we have a very uneven patchwork of information about where people's drinking water is contaminated. And so what these researchers did is use the information that we have, I believe, including the federal 
uh, testing that has been done, and then a couple of states as examples, and then extrapolated from those known testing sources out to the broader U.S. population. Okay, that's very helpful. Thanks for explaining that. Another issue with drinking water remediation is that these burdens can be uh, really disproportionately distributed. So for example, low-income communities might not be able to cover such high expenditures. They may have fewer options for cost recovery. They may employ fewer technical experts or legal experts. And some of our research also shows that PFAS contamination is likely to disproportionately impact low-income communities and possibly communities of color as well. And so this becomes an environmental justice issue. Why is that? This is a question that we're still trying to answer, honestly. Possible explanations relate to the age of housing stock or the age of water treatment facilities. Uh, We also know from many other environmental justice case studies that industrial operations, uh, military facilities, um, even light industry sites like car washes or dry cleaning facilities, many of these tend to be disproportionately located in low-income communities or communities of color. So there could be something also happening in terms of where facilities are located. We also know just looking at drinking water quality across the U.S. that low-income communities and communities of color, and also in particular, uh, sometimes indigenous communities, they might face additional challenges in accessing clean drinking water or drinking water that is uh, in compliance with federal drinking water regulations. Yes, we've certainly got some uh, impacts of that in Australian indigenous communities that have been uh, you know, affected by PFAS. And, and, and it's not just about water for them. Uh, the rivers and the creeks and the lakes, they, they live in these areas. They, it's part of their um, cultural heritage and, and they want their children to grow up fishing and eating off the land. And a lot of these areas have been contaminated with PFAS and they're told that they can't eat uh, what they used to eat from the river. And it's, that has a huge impact to them um, on a very personal level as well. Absolutely. It's really important to take cultural practices, historical practices into account when governments are developing risk assessments for exposure to PFAS and other chemicals and when they're considering remediation. Yes. Yeah, so and one of the things with a community in Catherine, they'd like to call themselves First Nations now, but I know that in studies and group discussions with these commu- these community leaders the elders they one of the issues was when they did the blood testing a lot of these people didn't couldn't get into town to have their blood monitored and they wanted people to come to them and and uh it wasn't happening so that's another another issue as well that perhaps the impact on these communities is not adequately recorded at all. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Definitely a concern. PFAS and wastewater can also lead to additional expenses for public utilities. Wastewater treatment plants are designed to remove solids and pathogens, but not persistent chemicals. And so PFAS that come into the treatment plant are largely discharged into receiving waters or can be left as contaminants in the sewage sludge. And I might just add that this has become a major concern for agricultural operations who then have applied that sludge to their land and then find that their crops or livestock are contaminated. Absolutely. We've discussed that um, at length in uh, Talking PFAS podcast episode 17, I talk about an Australian researcher's work in this area, but also talk about a farmer in Maine who, um, Fred Stone, he's very famous, had to close down his dairy farm because he had put 
the sewerage sludge that was actually provided to him from the local government um, to put onto the land and it had caused the contamination of um, his milk. And this is one of those types of costs that aren't often considered when we think about the cost of PFAS contamination. We're often focused on drinking water remediation, but it's so important to think broadly about uh, the economic costs to farmers. And you can also imagine other uh, less tangible, very hard to quantify costs that that farmer is experiencing, such as stress, decreased quality of life, grief over the loss of their animals. One of the other things we talk about in the paper is how farms in areas where PFAS uh, has contaminated the water, the soil, or was used in sludge may be forced to destroy their harvests, uh, destroy their products, including, unfortunately, in multiple cases, euthanizing their animals. Um, some farms have been forced out of operation completely. Uh, and, and this becomes a real challenge for those farmers who don't always have a path forward to continue farming operations on their land. Absolutely. And wasn't there an organic farm that you mentioned in there as well? That's right. There was an, an organic farm near Colorado's Fort Peterson Air Force Base that had to completely cease production after learning that their irrigation water was highly contaminated with PFAS from a nearby uh, from that nearby Air Force Base. Yeah, irrigation water is another area that gets very little attention but needs to get a whole lot more, doesn't it? The whole recycling of PFAS back into the environment is a big issue. Absolutely. Now, you also mentioned there under the heading other externalized costs of PFAS. You mentioned a few things there. Um, would you like to summarize that for us briefly? Point out a few things? Yeah, one of the additional costs related to PFAS contamination, it relates just to trying to figure out where that contamination might be. So uh, testing is very expensive. It is labor intensive, time consuming for um, typically for the the local and state officials who are doing the testing. Uh, And then uh, the question of what you do with contaminated soil or contaminated water or uh, the water filters once they are um, uh, once they have been used for drinking water treatment. Uh, Currently there are really no uh, long-term, well-studied options for safe, permanent disposal of PFAS. Incineration may destroy PFAS, but only at extremely high temperatures under very particular controlled environments. And it has not been shown to work at a large scale. Uh, And so there are lots of concerns over what you do with uh, contaminated PFAS media um, after they have been gathered up as part of the remediation process. Yes, because people are also concerned about the emissions that might that are that are re- that result from PFAS incineration. Right, there's been uh, sev- several communities again uh, that are exposed to the burning of PFAS. Um, some big cases in America about this. Absolutely. Let's talk about the PFAS contamination impacts for people because you know it's the reason I got into this in the first place um people that own properties and businesses that have been affected by PFAS um just to let you know briefly um in Australia we've had three communities that have uh brought a class action against the Department of Defense for contamination coming from the firefighting foams that were used on the bases um there's about 29 bases in Australia that are under investigation. But this 
class action settled for $212 million. And there was a, a huge chunk of that taken out with lawyers fees and litigation fees. And one thing that has remained is in the communities that, that have received this money, the people that I have spoken to post the class action, uh, many, many of them do not have enough money to move or to get out of the contamination. So here they are, they've been through the process, an exhausting process that has consumed their lives. They've received some money, but it's not enough. There is farmers who whose herds are still impacted, their water is still impacted. They, you know, primary producers and they can't just pack up and leave. It's their livelihood. But yet they're still living on this contaminated land. So, you know, those impacts on the mental health and the family health are enormous. Absolutely. And I think this points to our larger argument about how the costs of contamination are so multifaceted. So you certainly have the the relatively concrete costs in terms of declines in property values, people's uh, loss of livelihood if their business uh, is threatened or their farm has to close down. And then you also have those intangible costs of uh, of mental health impacts, of the stress of living uh, with, you know, with you and your family on contaminated land, knowing that you're consuming contaminated drinking water or produce or that you did in the past. So those intangible impacts are also very important. Yeah. Do you think there's enough attention in, um, you know, globally on the, the mental health of impacts on people that are forced forced actually to live on contaminated land because many of them can't just get up and sell their property and leave. Right. I think this is a really underappreciated type of impact from environmental contamination with PFAS and with other uh, types of environmental hazards that not everyone has the ability to uh, to move to a place that that feels safer or that has less contamination. And I think also, Alyssa, a little um, something that will become hopefully uh, will receive research in the future is what about the people all around the globe right now, right now in the middle of this pandemic that are living on contaminated land? They, they were told to stay home in lockdowns. Currently, Australia has got half, this, half the country in lockdown. But what about the people whose home is no longer their haven and they want to get out and away from it. Yeah, they've lost they've lost the enjoyment and the safety of their home many of them. Mhm. Absolutely. Mhm. No, it's a it's a huge trauma. Yeah, it's huge trauma exactly. And I'd just like to step away from the interview with Alyssa for a moment to discuss a paper that I came across regarding trauma and contamination by Deborah Davidson from 2017 called Evaluating the Effects of Living with Contamination from the Lens of Trauma, 
a case study of fracking development in Alberta, Canada. And it is an excellent article which hopefully can resonate with people who are struggling with the trauma from PFAS contamination. Deborah states in her paper that toxic contamination events generate experiences of trauma that are similar to other events identified as traumatic. She further writes in the abstract of her paper that trauma, the experience of sudden, dangerous, overwhelming events that render victims powerless is an apt description of many experiences with toxic contamination. Toxic contamination events often have a number of characteristics in common that render such events unique forms of trauma, including the invisibility and ambiguity of threats, an association between the threat and sources of livelihood and identity, and the absence of resources necessary for resolution and recovery. Even though Deborah's paper was about the exposure of a community to hydraulic fracking impacts, there are many similarities that I have observed in people I have interviewed here in Australia from their PFAS exposure. In Deborah's article, she writes that residents describe acute impacts to their health, land, livestock and loved ones. But these traumas were then exacerbated by the failure of authorities to respond in a manner expected and the corrosion of communities. Victims experienced complete upheaval in their beliefs and for many, their experiences with contamination and fears of future exposure have come to dominate their lives. During the production of this podcast since 2018, I have witnessed firsthand the trauma that PFAS exposure has caused to many people. I will put a link to Deborah's paper in the show notes. And now we'll return to my interview with Alyssa, where we have just discussed the trauma that contamination can cause. You know, I think people will be forever changed by what they've been through when it comes to living with contamination. Uh, a lot of people get become obsessed or fixated upon investigating contamination. Is that something that you look at as well? I, I think that one one commonality we see not so much in this paper in particular, but in our interviews with impacted residents and activists, is a real desire to understand why this happened to them, where the contamination came from, why the responsible party was allowed to, you know, dump the PFAS or use the AFFF foam or whatever it is. Uh, Sort of, they want to understand their situation and they want to understand what it means for their health and the health of their family. So that that desire for more information is something that we really do hear across across interviews um, with impacted residents. And I think back on the environmental justice, if I understand the the meaning of the term, like I just gave you the example, when you have a settlement or a class action payment, if you're if communities are lucky enough to get that, because it's not easy to get, um, and and it doesn't give the people like for like what they had before the contamination, it, it, it's very. It's very unjust. That's what I, that's what I keep hearing. People are still fighting, even though they've got no path to get any more compensation because it's done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would, what? How do they rectify that? What What can those people do? Um, do they just take the loss and get out? It, it's a very hard, hard topic. That one. 
Mm-hmm. It, it really is. And that's why in all of our work, we try to argue for a more precautionary approach to PFAS and to our entire chemicals regulatory system to try to um, essentially, you know, turn off the tap of future exposures to shift the burden from the public and from these impacted residents um, back onto the people who are the people and the organizations or corporations who are benefiting from producing and using these compounds to try to um, lessen the likelihood that these situations will happen in the future because without a a pretty dramatic shift in how chemicals are regulated and without a shift in that responsibility back onto the responsible parties, we'll just continue to see these situations time and time again with PFAS, with uh, other compounds in this chemical class that people aren't looking at right now that, you know, not just PFOA and, and PFOS, but the, the thousands of other chemicals and with other, um, other chemicals of concern as well. Another major area of PFAS costs can be legal expenses. So there have been states who have been sued by PFAS manufacturers related to their health protective drinking water uh, regulations. Some states have received compensation uh, from companies related to PFAS contamination, but the the number of lawsuits, the size of the settlements, the number of, uh, of lawsuits that have not been settled or not had any resolution um, really indicates how broad the scope of the problem is. And which of those states that that you talk about in your paper have been sued from PFAS manufacturers? New Hampshire and New Jersey are two states that we're aware of uh, either um, faced prior, um, I think actually both of them, there are current lawsuits against both of those states related to their drinking water regulation, New Hampshire and New Jersey. Yeah, very interesting. And in um, episode 27, I spoke with a reporter from Michigan, Garrett Allison. He talks about that the state of Michigan right now is currently being sued by 3M because of Michigan's uh, reduced drinking water limits for PFAS. They have greatly reduced them and uh, 3M is suing them because of that. So they're awesome. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, it's quite a remarkable turn of events, isn't it, when the polluter sues a, a water provider for trying to protect public health from a contaminant that that polluter introduced in the first place. Anything you want to add to that? Um, I, I think, you know, related to our paper, the thing that we would highlight would be the the huge costs that can be associated with those lawsuits in terms of uh, certainly legal expenses, but also the, um, the, the technical uh, expertise required to defend those standards uh, in, in court. Um, you know, the, the drinking water standards that states like Michigan or New Hampshire or New Jersey are developing they are science-based, they're drawing on the best available evidence, and they take a huge amount of staff time and resources from state agencies. And so the the idea that these lawsuits are, are challenging those standards is drawing drawing those experts away from needed public health work that they could be doing otherwise. Yeah, very true. Uh, Alyssa, is there any think that can be done these chemicals are so ubiquitous in the environment and we know that they're persistent i mean even though even though we must point out not all pfas are toxic and i've had experts in the podcast tell me that so we must point out that 
the 9,000 of them and not all of them are toxic, but they all do share persistence. And that is one of the key things that ties them all together. Is there any hope? Is there anything that can be done or is it is it just too late um, to stop the impacts of PFAS in our environment? The persistence of this class of chemicals does unfortunately mean that the chemicals that are already out there will continue to have impacts for years, decades to come because they are so incredibly persistent. And the fact that that is a defining and shared characteristic of this class of chemicals, along with bioaccumulation, along with mobility, along with lots of evidence for toxicity across the chemical class, suggests that as many leading scientists in the U.S. internationally are arguing, we should be pursuing a class-based regulatory approach to PFAS, uh, that we should be following, um, uh, following recommendations to, uh, end, to phase out and end most uses of this class of chemicals unless they are uh, uh, truly evaluated as being essential meaning that there are uh, no available replacements and that the, the performance provided is absolutely essential to, um, uh, to uh, society in some way. Uh, so, you know, we're not talking about making a, a fancy waterproof jacket, but maybe we're talking about very specialized uses of this class of chemicals in particular medical um, supplies. Uh, and I, I know some of your guests have talked about that idea of essential use and the class-based regulatory approach. Um, so, so we really uh, are echoing those calls uh, for a change in how, how PFAS are regulated. Well, we also know that PFAS have been PFAS are used in protective personal protective equipment, uh, which has been essential in the pandemic. So, um, you know, masks and gowns, and that many of them can contain PFAS chemicals for their waterproof function. Right, and I think the question would be. Uh you know, certainly that's a, a valuable and important and necessary performance function. Are PFAS the only way to achieve that function? Uh, and, and I'll leave that question up to, uh, you know, to a different set of, of researchers to answer. Um, but for, you know, for, for most uses of, uh, of PFAS across industrial and consumer product sectors, there are alternatives. And additionally, uh, if the if um, regulatory systems took a more precautionary, more class-based, more essential use approach to this class of chemicals, uh, there would be um, a, a tremendous amount of research and development targeted towards developing safer alternatives for this class of chemicals. Uh, there's, um, you know, of course, the example of. Uh, a certain um, grocery store chain uh, saying we're not going to sell products that contain PFAS. This required pulling off the shelves um, microwave popcorn in a certain market, and it, it wasn't very long before the industry developed a replacement compound for that very particular use. And so I think one of the things that uh, the chemical industry has shown time and time again in the, you know, throughout history is there's a lot of really smart folks who are designing products within the chemical industry, and we should um, encourage and incentivize the development of safer alternatives uh, that don't share these same characteristics of uh, uh, persistence, bioaccumulation, and toxicity. 
Absolutely. You're talking about green chemistry there, aren't you? Absolutely. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in my last episode, we talked about PFAS in cosmetics, which it really seems like, like, is that necessary at all? You know, really, do, do women or anybody who uses cosmetics, I should say, do they want these things, these chemicals in their product that they are using on their face and on their body? <laughs> I don't. Agreed. And it's such a problem. In in my opinion, it's such a problem that uh, consumers are not able to know whether they are using PFAS. And one of the things that that article found was that many compounds in which the researchers detected PFAS did not list a PFAS on their ingredient label. And so it's not even possible for consumers to be making uh, fully informed decisions about the safety of the products they're using. Yeah, I think that's a big one. And I think for community members, I've spoken with community members in Australia and, and you know, many of them who already have very high levels of PFAS in their body, higher than the normal population, they want to reduce PFAS in every other part of their life that they possibly can. But even it's even in our food chain, it's even in our beef, fruit and vegetables, eggs. Eggs are highly contaminated with PFAS if if they have been, uh, you know, if those chickens or hens have been laying near a source of PFAS, I must say, they will be highly contaminated eggs. Um, so people do worry that have got high levels in their body about all these other other areas that maybe we might only be getting a little bit of PFAS, but to firefighters, communities, they don't want any more PFAS in their body. Um, so it is a big, it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Alyssa, it's a, it's a great paper. I think you raise a lot of, well, you, you do raise a lot of issues that have been discussed widely through my podcast. And um, I think it's, it does all of those areas just deserve more attention for sure. Um, what would you like to add just before we finish up here? I think the biggest takeaway that we hope uh, folks will get from this paper and and from future work that will come out of our research group is highlighting how broad these uh, these costs are, how multifaceted they are. So uh, certainly when we think about uh, the cost of drinking water remediation, the cost of PFAS can seem overwhelming, but it's important to balance those uh, or, or to put those costs also into conversation with the other costs that are already being experienced and borne by the public, by residents, by governments, whether it's the short and long-term health impacts of drinking contaminated water or eating contaminated food, whether it's the very specific impacts to a particular business or farm, um, or it's the impacts to uh, state regulatory agencies who are trying to trying to do their work in the face of this contamination. All of these things really call for a strengthened regulatory system that will uh, better enforce in existing regulations and develop stronger class-based regulations and laws that will force the internalization of costs of PFAS. Very, very good. Just in finishing up, what would you recommend to impacted communities? Sometimes people can feel very small against a big polluter or even in some cases an unknown source of PFAS. What would you recommend to community members that have been affected by PFAS or 
are suffering the harms of PFAS? I think one of the the real um, strengths that we've seen in the PFAS social movement world is the tremendous amount of resilience and organizing potential that communities have have shown they have. That uh, this uh, this class of chemicals is receiving um, a huge amount of attention locally, at state levels, federally, internationally, and that is really due, uh, in so many cases, to the work of advocates and impacted residents. So I think seeking out others who are going through the same experience, seeking out scientists, regulators, um, journalists, lawyers who are allies uh, can really help community members um, identify things they can do locally, ways they contribute to the larger conversations about PFAS regulation um, and, and see a path forward. Okay. And so what, it, what I think, you know, to end on here it may, you know, community members at the everyday person should not believe that they are powerless here. They have a lot of power. Yeah, I think impacted residents have have a lot of power, a lot of ability to tell their story. And it's a story that is really resonating in this current moment and that is having a lot of impact um, in terms of how PFAS will be produced and regulated in the coming years. Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful to talk with you today. Uh, is there anything else you want to add? I don't think so. Thank you so much for the, the opportunity. And um, I'm happy to connect with folks if they want to email me. Uh, and my contact information is available on the article. Fantastic. It's been wonderful to talk with you. And thank you again for being a guest in the Talking PFAS podcast. Yes, thank you so much, Kayleen. I look forward to hearing it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and season finale. I look forward to returning with a new season of Talking PFAS podcast in January 2022. I want to sincerely thank everyone who has listened to this podcast and supported me since it began in 2018. Also, a very special thanks to all my guests who have contributed to this podcast and made it an excellent, free source of PFAS information discussing many aspects of PFAS to suit a broad range of stakeholders. A very big thank you. I hope that you will share this podcast listeners with others and that you will re-listen to some of your favorite episodes of Talking PFAS in the break. And remember you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. All information in today's episode is copyright. Please share the episode and the podcast, but please contact me for reuse permission. Feel free to email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and see you in 2022.